Um, so make sure you're here for that. We are making our way through Mark's gospel just text by text. So we've made it today to the passage that Dad just read in Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 17. We do want to open up the Bible and preach it um, every week here at City Church. Most of the time that means we work our way through a certain uh, book of the Bible or a chapter of the Bible. Um, every once in a while we kind of do series-based things, but even then we want to open up the Scripture because I want you to hear from the Word. We have been um, in our basic belief study on Wednesday nights. We talked last week about the Word of God, and the importance of the Word of God is not just information, but transformation. And part of the transformation of God's Word is opening, opening up the Scriptures and uh, preaching every week from the Scriptures because we believe that is what will change your heart and life. So last week, we looked at a text that basically told us that to enter God's kingdom, uh, that we must have nothing, that those who enter God's kingdom um, come with nothing, they, those with no social status, no possessions, no rights, no leverage, no power, are those who are given everything in the kingdom of God. That was in the form last week of children who represented what it means to come um, kind of this helpless state to God. Uh, this week, we look at the exact opposite. And so let's jump right into our text this morning, Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. We'll walk through it verse by verse and then uh, bring in some application at the end. Uh, verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This same story in Matthew's gospel tells us that this person, man, was a young man. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And so often the title given to this man was the rich young ruler. And this is actually a very tragic story of a rich young ruler who, just reading at face value, appears to have some things going for him. Uh, we see that in this exchange with Jesus. Uh, he has the right urgency, right? He runs up to Jesus. We see this urgency uh, factors. He runs uh, to Jesus. He has the right posture before Jesus. He kneels before him. He's showing honor and respect to Jesus. And he even has the right question here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He has the eternal, question, eternal life question uh, to bring to Jesus. And let's, this is the most important question for all humanity. The eternal life question. It's not a question that we give a lot of thought to, but it's the eternal life question. It's not a lot of people sitting around thinking about eternal life. They're not doing that at Starbucks or uh, where we're too busy watching Netflix or the Crimson Tide or whoever to, to think about big questions often. But this guy's thinking about the big, the big question, the eternal life question. So he seems to have the right posture, the right urgency. Uh, he even has the, the right question, but at the same time, it is the wrong question. Now, I want to keep this in mind. When this guy's asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, I want you to think less in terms of entering the pearly gates, golden streets, heaven. That's not what he's talking about. That would not be what a young Jewish man would even be thinking about, would be uh, the celestial city like that we read about in uh, the New Testament as the New Testament evolves. What this young man would be asking and what Jesus will be responding to is this idea of eternal life in the kingdom of God, meaning that there is an age that is coming that I want to make sure I'm a part of, uh, that I live in the now and that 
in his mind, in the Jewish teachings, the rabbinic teachings, the Old Testament, that eternal life meant that there was an age to come uh, where God would recreate the world. And so that was the terms that they, they thought in, they acted in, they spoke in. Okay, so we kind of often kind of put on this text our view of heaven and uh, pearly gates and golden streets, right? Those are things that evolved from the teachings of Jesus and throughout the New Testament. But this young man would not have had like any idea about any of that. So what he's really asking is, how do I make sure that what I'm doing now gets me into the age to come, into this kind of new creation, this new way of life, this eternal way of life? So again, good question. An eternal life question. He wants to ensure that what he is currently doing guarantees his later, right? It will pay off in the end. So there is a lot right about him. If we're being honest, he looks like a good recruit. This guy's a first rounder, right? He's young, he's wealthy. We, we, if we again read the other text, he's a ruler probably of a synagogue. Uh, he has a vast knowledge. He's asking the right questions. Man, this seems like a first-round draft pick if you're recruiting disciples. But as the story progresses, what seems to be the right question is actually the wrong question. He's wrong about a number of things. He's wrong first about himself. You see, he, he believes that he is more righteous than he is. He believes that he has more ability than he has, that he has the ability to acquire, to earn eternal life. I want to be honest with you, living in the Bible belt of the U.S., we see this a lot. We see it in our own lives, in the culture in which we live. People that believe they're more righteous than they actually are. They have more ability to earn God's favor than they actually do. Uh, that I'm not quite as bad as the person down the street for me, or I know this guy or gal at work that does this, and man, I don't do that. I'm better than they are. And I, you know, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm better than this person, or I'm not as bad as that person. Or we have our kind of spiritual checklist that somehow if I've done all these things right. Like I have a pretty good moral checklist of all the things I do right. I show up at church. I'm a pretty good parent, right? I, I, I don't do all these things that somehow we're earning God's favor. And so a lot of us are in the same category as this, this young man, thinking we're more righteous than we actually are and thinking that we have more ability to kind of earn God's favor than we actually do. And so he, he's wrong about himself. He's also wrong about the idea of entering God's kingdom, this kingdom interest. He believes that behavior, that doing, is the defining requirement for eternal life. What can I do, right, to guarantee that I'm going to be there? What can I do now in this life that guarantees my entrance into the life to come? He believes that somehow kingdom entrance, entering God's kingdom, is about doing something, about acquiring it, earning it. And again, this is a very common attitude. It's a very common attitude today to think that God is somehow measuring on a kind of a moral report card. Now, we've got A's for all of this, so when the judgment comes, yeah, I think you're going to be okay because here's your moral checklist of things you got right. It's very common to think in terms of, at the end of the day, as long as my good somehow outweighs my bad, then I'm going to be okay. 
He has the wrong idea of what it means to enter into God's kingdom. And again, we tend to fall prey to the self-righteous trap. At the end of the day, he is also wrong about about Jesus. He's wrong about himself. He's wrong about entering God's kingdom. And then he's wrong about Jesus. Look in verse 18. He approaches Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, this young man believes that Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good rabbi. And he shows that. He shows respect. He kneels before him. He calls him good teacher. This is a title of respect. Let me be quick to say here, Jesus is not denying his goodness. Jesus is not saying, I'm not really good. Only the Father is What Jesus is saying is, if you are only thinking of me as a good teacher, you have fallen short. You see, Jesus claims to be so much more than a good teacher. He claims to be so much more than just a moral leader. Jesus claims to be God. And to believe that he is only a moral teacher, a good teacher, is to miss who Jesus is. If he is only a moral teacher and he's not God, then he's not a good person. He's a deceiver. He's wicked. But he claims to be God. Let me pause to say at this point in the text, there is a built-in warning here that we would be good to heed. And the built-in warning is that you can get a lot right in terms of seeking God, asking big questions about the afterlife or about God himself. You can get a lot right about religious, moral behavior, and also be wrong about the questions that really matter, about the Jesus question, about the eternal life question. Again, this seems like a five-star level recruit. Seems like the type of guy that, man, just sign him up to be a disciple, put him alongside Peter, James, John, like he's the the next in line. He had a lot right, a lot going for him, but he was wrong about the essential matters of what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 19, Jesus again saying to him, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus' response to the eternal life question is not what we might expect. What Jesus does is he answers with this list of ethical commands that come from the Big Ten, the Big Ten Commandments. Uh, What is going on here? Is Jesus saying like, hey, if I keep the Ten Commandments, then I am a part of God's kingdom? No, a few things going on here. In part, uh, as Paul tells us later in the New Testament, the law, part of the purpose of the law was to reveal to us how short we actually fall from God's commands. That the law kind of gives us the perspective of like, here's what God expects, and all of us fall short of that standard. And so by quoting the Ten Commands here, Jesus is putting that in perspective of like, we all fall short of God's commands. Now, despite his moral zeal, this young man is still lacking in his quest for eternal life. And so by quoting the ten, part of the Ten Commands here, Jesus is moving him beyond kind of this inflated view, self-righteous view of himself, and he is redirecting him 
on what it means to be a part, to enter the kingdom of God. We've watched this week after week after week as Jesus invites us to follow him, to become a part of the kingdom of God, right? Not by keeping a list of commands, but by realigning our hearts and minds to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. The Bible term that we use for this is repentance. And I'm going to reorient, I'm going to realign, I'm going to follow him, I'm going to redirect my life, my ways to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He is redirecting this young man to what it means to truly live under the rule and reign of Jesus. Jesus. And he'll get to the heart of what's going on in this young man in just a moment. Verse 20, check out this guy's response. He said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, sometimes we read this with the sense that Jesus is just trying to expose his hypocrisy, and Jesus is kind of saying, yeah, whatever. But surprisingly, this young man responds enthusiastically. I have kept these things from my youth. And for a Jewish young man that was probably a ruler in the synagogue, this means from about 12 years old. And so what he's saying is, I have done everything in my power to be able to live up to these commands, to check that box, right? So Jesus says, keep these laws. And the young man's like, oh, I'm all in. I have the moral checklist accomplished. The mission has been accomplished. And there's no reason to doubt his sincerity here. The text doesn't give us any indicator that he's not being completely sincere with his response to Jesus. As a matter of fact, that a young person, particularly one that kind of climbed the ladder in rabbinic schools and was now a ruler in the synagogue, there's no reason to doubt doubt that this person believed that he could keep the entire Torah, like it was built into their teachings. And the rabbinic teachings was this idea that a person could do this. As a matter of fact, Paul said, When he was a a Jewish Pharisee, right, he said that he was blameless according to the law. So there was this idea of being able to keep the law in its entirety. That was the kind of mindset that they have. Now, I love how Jesus responds here to the young man, verse 21. And Jesus, look at the, notice the progress here, looking at him. This word looking means to see deeply into someone. Looking at him, he loved him. And this word loved here is the only time it's used of Jesus toward a person in Mark's gospel. It's the highest level of love. It's agape, godly love. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus looks intently deeply into this young man. He sees him, and he loves him. Let me pause to say this morning. Jesus sees you. He sees you. Whatever's going on in your life, he sees you. He sees beneath the facade. He sees beneath the smiling face. How are you doing today? I'm great. He sees beyond that. He sees beyond the surface. He sees beyond the Facebook status that we post to make everybody think everything's cool. He sees beyond that, and he sees deeply into our hearts. And his response is not one of being repulsed by you or turned away by you or sneering at you. His response is that he loves you deeply. He sees you, and he loves you deeply. Like, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, right? That if God is really looking past it all and sees into the depths of my heart, 
my nature is to think like he's going to be repulsed by what he sees. But as Jesus looks deeply into this self-righteous young man, he loves him. He loves him with the love of God. He sees him, and he is not repulsed by him. He sees him, and he loves him. He does not sneer at him and be like, whatever, dude, keep in the tent. Are you joking me? He does not sneer at him. He does not even chide him for his self-righteous attitude. Neither, neither does he lower the bar, does he? He doesn't bring it down to his level. He has compassion on him and speaks kingdom truth to him because he sees him and loves him. You still lack one thing, Jesus says. You lack one thing. Now, 80s and 90s here, every time I think that, you lack one thing. For some reason, I always think about Curly and City Slickers. Anybody else ever see this movie? Billy Crystal? You lack one thing, son. This is Jesus saying to this young man, you lack one thing. There's one thing that you lack, the most essential thing. And then he gives them these four kingdom directives. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me to receive eternal life. Then, in the age to come, to receive eternal life, then, Jesus is saying, that's what this young man's asking you about. How do I guarantee that what I'm doing now is going to get me there to the age to come, to the new creation? To have eternal life, to receive eternal life, then, in the age to come, Jesus says, you must come under the rule and reign of Jesus now. To obtain eternal life then, to receive eternal life then, you must come under the rule and reign of Jesus now. That's the essential thing. You must turn from what defines you. You must turn from what you are clinging to most tightly. And you must live under the kingship of Jesus. You see, discipleship involves a cost. We've seen it in Mark's gospel. Fishermen just lay down their nets, give up their, their job in the case of the four brothers, and follow Jesus. Tax collector, to follow me, must walk away from the tax booth. We saw it back in chapter 8. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up, you have to take up the cross Die to yourself and follow me. Discipleship cost. You see, Jesus is not asking him to just add another obligation to his moral checklist. He's not asking him to do something additional. He is asking him to abandon his security and his allegiances. He is asking him to abandon what sits on the throne of his heart and to follow Jesus. And verse 22 reveals that. 22 reveals what is going on inside this young man. As Jesus looks deeply into his heart, we suddenly realize what's going on in his heart. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For, here it is, he had great possessions. 
Jesus reveals what is going on at the heart level. And this young man goes away sorrowful because he has great possessions. He is unwilling to relinquish his one thing, which was stuff, was possessions, was money, was wealth. He is unwilling to relinquish his one thing that sits on the throne of his heart to follow Jesus. And he walks away sad. This is the last time we ever hear of this young man. He forsakes the possibility of eternal life for wealth and security. And he walks away sorrowful. Verse 23. I like the pause moment here. And Jesus looked around. And then he says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, that should give us a flashback to last week, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He doubles down. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This young man walks away, Jesus looks around, he pauses, and then he makes this pointed statement regarding wealth. It is difficult, Jesus says, merely impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are astonished at this. The reason they are astonished is because wealth was commonly recognized as a sign of God's blessing in that culture. Often Jewish rabbis were some of the wealthiest people in the city, because it was recognized as a sign of God's blessing. There is a kind of brand of preaching and teaching today that teaches along the same lines, that if you are receiving God's blessing, that that translates into stuff, uh, money or health, a lot of different ways. It's often called the um, health and wealth um, gospel, prosperity gospel. And I would say if you're listening to a person that preaches or teaches a version of the prosperity gospel, like run away. That's not biblical gospel teaching. We kind of see this here with, with the rich young ruler, he, the, the, with the disciples' response that wealth was considered a sign of God's blessing. Now, in this culture, there was no middle class like we know of in our American culture. There was only the wealthy, who were usually very extremely wealthy, and then there was the lower class. There was only one or two percent of people that would even be considered wealthy. And so what that meant is that 1% or 2%, uh, they got what they wanted uh, when they wanted it. They were the VIPs. They um, sat in the preferred seats. They got the preferred attention. And so the disciples' response is, like, how can the wealthy be denied? It's obvious they are under God's blessing. How can they be denied? Isn't God in their corner? And so for emphasis, Jesus, again, doubles down. He repeats this staggering statement, and he uses this hyperbole attached to it for emphasis. He says, look, it is easier for a camel, that would have been the largest animal in that culture, the camel, you know, for us, I don't know what that will be, the elephant, um, roll tide. Don't, don't give me a roll tide because I said elephant. Come on, the camel, this, this large animal, 
to go through the eye of a needle, which would, again, be the smallest opening that perhaps we can think of. Jesus is using a figure of speech here, a hyperbole. Sometimes you'll hear um, preachers or teachers of this text trying to make this make sense. Like you'll hear guys talk about that there was a, a gate in the wall that was the needle gate for a camel to get down on all fours and try to go through. The problem with that interpretation is the needle gate did not come along in Jerusalem for 800 years after this text was written. And so we just let Jesus say what he's saying here and realize like this is hyperbole. Jesus is using an exaggerated um, metaphor to, to get the, the, the point across. Uh, we just saw him use one a couple of chapters when he said like rip your eyes out or chop off a limb as opposed to facing God's judgment, right? So he uses this type of language that would have been common in his day. And so Jesus is just making a point here that's extremely difficult, if not impossible, for those who are dependent upon wealth to enter into God's kingdom. I mentioned it when I read the verse. There's a note of grace here. When Jesus refers to his disciples as children, this takes us back to last week when we said as the, the children who have nothing, who are given everything in the kingdom of God. And Jesus refers to his followers, his disciples, as his children. Again, this flashback to the previous text that his disciples belong to him. They are his. They belong to Jesus. The disciples have been hard-hearted, and they fail to understand. They have this inability to spiritually see and hear what he's teaching. They have misguided motives on the regular, but they belong to Jesus. They are his children. And so we see that just, just one word in this text that Jesus is saying, you're mine, you belong to me, and don't miss the point of what I'm saying. Verse 26, Jesus continues, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Like if this guy is unqualified, disqualified, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. They are exceedingly, the word here, exceedingly shocked at what Jesus has to say. Jesus, if this guy who from all outside indications seems to have the favor and blessing of God, if he is disqualified, then who can be saved? If this person, this five-star recruit, misses the mark. If this guy who has everything going for him cannot obtain eternal life, then who can? If he is unqualified, it must be impossible. And again, Jesus doesn't lower the bar here, does he? He says, you're right, it is impossible. It is impossible for humans to bring anything to the table to earn obtain eternal life. It is beyond human possibility. But with God, all things are possible. You see, what you lack, God provides. Eternal life is the work of God. Whatever it is we bring to the table, it is not enough because eternal life is not enough earned or obtained or acquired, eternal life is received. God is doing his work. Verse 28, 
we should not be shocked, astonished, or extremely shocked when we read that Peter speaks up. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And maybe, maybe there is a tone here in Peter of like, we did this and he did not. I don't, can't really read like emphasis in the text what Peter's actually saying. He may just be making a, an honest statement here. And Jesus does actually affirm Peter's statement. So Peter says, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. And he's right, they have. It seems he's looking for reassurance from Jesus, which makes sense. Because Jesus just said what? Hey, it's basically impossible to enter the kingdom of God. Maybe Peter's just looking at, hey, Jesus, you know the whole impossible thing. Like, we've left everything to follow you. And Peter is reassured by the words of Jesus, 29, in our text. Jesus said, truly I say to you, again, truly I say is like repeating, yes, yes, yes. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and lands. And then he throws in this phrase we like to leave out of this text with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says, those who do forsake everything to live under the rule and reign of God. Jesus says, for my sake and the good news of the kingdom, the gospel, they will receive a hundredfold return, both in this age and the age to come. That those who give up everything to follow Jesus in the end, are given everything. That's why eternal life is not just a, when I die, then I get the gift of eternal life. Eternal life is a here and now. And we are grafted into the body of Christ that we are granted the gift of eternal life now. The Paul, We saw it when we did our, our Romans 8 series that Paul uses this language like as if we are already in that stage of eternal life. And then right at the end here, right, we're reminded of this kingdom living emphasis that we've talked about again and again. We're in God's kingdom. The, the first are those who are last, that those who are great are those who are serving, that those who gain everything are those who bring nothing to the table. Upside down living in God's kingdom. So let's talk about some obvious takeaways from this text. And this first one has to, do, it has to do with money and wealth and stuff. And so the question for us is, from this text, like what role does money, this stuff, this possessions, wealth, what role does it play in my life? There's two obvious temptations when we read this text, when it comes to applying the text. There's two obvious temptations here for us. One, there's the temptation to downplay what Jesus is saying to make his demands seem more reasonable. To downplay when Jesus says, go sell everything, 
give your possessions away and come follow me. We, we like to downplay that so it doesn't seem like Jesus is being quite so demanding. And then the second obvious temptation here is to apply what Jesus is saying to someone else. Someone in our minds who has more money than me, has more stuff than me. After all, I'm, I'm not a part of the rich by any stretch, right? In our minds, we're not a part of the wealthy. Like this whole thing's about someone else. Yeah, all those rich people. I'm not in the whatever top percent. I'm down here, right? Anyway, this is not even a part of the sermon. This is just for free. You know, almost every person that lives in the U.S. by the world's economy is considered a wealthy, rich person. That's for another message. Jesus has got to be talking about someone different, someone who earns more, has more, spends all their life working for more. So let's be honest. This is not an easy text. Maybe this text is more difficult than the one I preached two weeks ago on marriage and divorce. I don't know. If it is more difficult, it's because this issue is so close to our hearts. Money and possessions and stuff. It hits home. But to be faithful to the text, we cannot tone down what Jesus is saying here. We can't tone down what he's saying about money, nor do we, nor do we pretend that his words are applicable to someone else besides me. Here's the reality when it comes to the Bible and money. Did you know there's over 2,000 verses in the New Testament alone on money or possessions or wealth? To put that in perspective for you, there's about 500 on prayer. There's less than 500 on faith. Eleven of the 39 parables that Jesus taught were about possessions, about money. 15% of what Jesus said had to do with wealth or money or possessions. Jesus talked more about possessions and wealth and stuff than he did about heaven and hell combined. Matter of fact, if you study what Jesus had to say about wealth, money, possessions, it's very difficult to find even one thing that he had to say that was positive. Everything he had to say had to do with warnings and the threat of money, the danger of money. Why? As we see in the story, here's the reason. Money, at the end of the day, is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Which is why, when we talk about it, room gets quiet, people get uncomfortable. Here we go again, Pastor, another pastor talking about money. City Church has been around about seven years. I can probably count on one hand the number of times this has come up. It's not even how we kind of systematically teach through the Bible. We get uncomfortable with it because it's, it's close to our hearts. Now, me saying that, that I haven't really talked about it in seven years, I have to tell you it's a little bit of a disservice as your pastor that I have not talked about it more than that because it is such a heart issue. What you do with your money, how you manage, manage it, is a 
spiritual issues. That's why Jesus said you can't serve both God and stuff, possessions, money. Mammon is the old translation. Mammon was a, a god of material. You can't do both. You can't serve both. That's why Jesus said the love of it is the root of all evil. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about idolatry. When it sits on the throne of your heart, it controls everything. And so we want to be clear where the Scriptures are clear. Our relationship with money is one of the most difficult obstacles when it comes to following Jesus. And it's not about the money itself. It is about how possessions tend to capture and control our hearts. A.W. Tozier, the great theologian, said, he called this the tyranny of wealth. The tyranny of wealth. It rules and it reigns over us. The tyranny of wealth. So here's kind of my takeaway, the overall perspective of money in Scripture. The overall perspective of money in Scripture is this. It can be useful but be warned, it is extremely dangerous. It can be useful, but be warned, because it is extremely dangerous. It will take over the throne of your heart in a moment's time. And as we see in this text, the call to follow Jesus is a call to renounce loyalty to the ruler in my heart other than Jesus. If we flash back to the verse I just quoted when Jesus said you cannot serve both God and stuff or possessions, he's using language of a controller, of a master, of a king. Who am I bowing my knee to? Who is ruling in my heart? Do you know what subject Jesus talks way more about money than in the text? We've been going over it week after week after week. The kingdom of God. He talks way more about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, than he does about money or any other subject. Now, what I've been telling you week after week after week about the kingdom of God is it's really about the rule and reign of Jesus. Wherever Jesus rules and reigns, that is the kingdom of God. And so he talks way more about the kingdom of God than he does about money because when Jesus is ruling and reigning in your heart, when you're living in the kingdom of God under the rule and reign of Jesus, then money is not the king of your heart, is it? Not sitting on the throne of your heart. This is a kingdom issue, a spiritual issue. What is ruling and reigning in my life? So... Let me give you just two truths that are essential in maintaining a proper relationship with money in my life. And I think, honestly, if you grasp these two principles, it changes everything when it comes to stuff, money in our lives. Principle number one from Scripture is just this, God owns everything. And I'm not just talking about just the cliche like, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? That's just like cliche words, yeah, God owns everything. What I'm saying is, it is all His. It's all His. And I am entrusted 
to steward, to manage what is already his. You see, you are living with one of two perspectives here this morning on this subject. You are living with either the perspective, it is mine, or you're living with the perspective, it is his. And whichever perspective you have, it impacts how you live day to day in your relationship with money. So how do I get a pulse on my perspective on how I am living with money? Well, let me do it this way first. Um, I've, Ash and I have been doing some stuff, and I was $100 short this week on something that we really needed for our house. So I thought, since we're talking about money, um, I wondered if there was anybody in the room that has 100 bucks that you might give me, preferably $100 bills. Volunteers? Mac Mahath, Mac Mahath, I mean, this is an elder. He kind of feels obligated, but um, Rick's, Rick's got it. This is giving. It's not like a loan. Belongs to me. Thank you, my friend. All right. I love Rick McMahon. This is not why he's an elder, but it's what keeps him an elder. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. 100 bucks to give me. Now, what you don't know is before service, I went up to Rick and said, take this $100 bill that belongs to me. And during the sermon, I'm going to ask for someone to give me $100. And I want you to volunteer to come and give me $100. This is not Rick's. This is mine. It already belongs to me. And I'm not giving it away. <laughs> but you understand the point of what I'm talking about. He's willing to give it to me a lot more freely and openly. And he would probably do the same if it wasn't mine. But he, he's willing to give it to me because it already belongs to me. He didn't do anything to earn it deserve it, work for it. I just gave it to him to give back to me. You live life with one of two perspectives. It is either God's and it's been given to me to manage, steward, or it all belongs to me. How do I know? How do I, how, how do I know which my perspective is? Here's a way to get the pulse of your perspective on money, and it's so simple. And it's simply, do I tend to give? Am I a giver? Am I a giver? And not just do I give, but here's the penetrating question. And maybe the first question, maybe that question is just enough for you. If you're a giver, you're not a giver, that's step one. Here's the bigger question. Do I give based on what's left over? Or do I give and live off what is left over after I've already given to God? Do I give to God based on what's left over at the end of the month, if I kind of have some stuff left and I'm going to tip my hand to God? Or do I give to God and then live based uh, off what's left over? Here's how to simplify that question. Do I prioritize giving? Do I prioritize it in my life? Now, let me be really honest with you. The first group here that lives as if it is all mine, 
the first group is not necessarily greedy. It just reveals our priorities. And it reveals that I believe and feel and live like I am responsible to meet my own needs. And a portion of what I have left, I might give to God. The second group, hopefully where we grow into, is that everything already belongs to God. That He is responsible for meeting my needs. It's in the Lord's Prayer. That He is responsible for meeting my needs. Therefore, I will be generous because it already belongs to Him. And then generosity becomes a way of life. God owns everything. And then here's a second principle. This is a life-changing principle when it comes to the subject. The second biblical truth is this. My heart follows my money. Jesus said this in Matthew 6. My heart follows my money. It is the treasure in heaven Jesus refers to here. It's the treasure in heaven principle. And here's what it is. It's so simple. When I give, my heart follows my money. You know what that means? When my top priority is me, and all my money is about me keeping it, holding it, spending it, balancing my budget, how am I going to pay for this? When my, when my top priority is me when it comes to money, when it's me, guess where my heart is? On me. It's turned in. It's selfish. That's where things like greed and those things arise. Because my, my focus is on me. Because my heart follows my money. So the reverse is also true. When I give away my money, my heart follows. If, if my attitude with my money is to give it away, my heart follows and it becomes generosity. Generosity is the antidote to greed. Why? Because I'm giving it away. My eyes get outward instead of inward. There's never been a single time at the end of the year that I looked at Ashley based on what we gave that year and thought, man, I wish I had not given away so much. I wish I had kept more. I can tell you year after year after year, when I look at what we have, God has enabled us to give, I have thought, man, I wish I could have done just a little more. I wish I could have given more. I wish I could have helped more. And when I am giving away what often sits on the throne of my heart, possession, stuff, money, it takes my eyes off of me onto stuff. If you invest in stocks, guess what you're doing in those stocks? You're watching them up, down, back, forth. Why? My heart follows my money. You invest in a house, guess what you want to do with a house? You want to keep it up and maintain it. And these are things we should do, right? If I buy a car, right, I'm going to keep it up, maintain it. If I got my eyes on something, I'm spending money toward it, right? We have the, kid, the conversation with our kids all the time. I spent money for that. Why are you not taking care of that, right? That's because our eyes follow, our heart follows where our money goes. And so if we learn the idea of being generous people that give away, our heart soon turns itself outward and not inward. So as the pastor of City Church and one of the elders here, I, I would say to you, I have no problem standing on this stage and encouraging you to give to what God's doing at City Church. Did you know there are things we can't do at City Church simply because we can't fuel it with the funding 
to do it? So I would say, look, if you, if you are not a giver, step one is begin to give. I think you can make a pretty strong biblical case for 10% as a good starting point, right? I'm not like this old school, like tithing is a principle. I think it's an Old Testament principle primarily, uh, but I think it translates into the New Testament fulfilled in Jesus who says, give everything to me, right? Old Testament was like 10%, 20% in a lot of cases, but uh, I'm, I'm the fulfillment of the law. Everything belongs to me. <laughs> Right? And so be a giver. I think, again, there's a biblical case for 10%. If you can't do 10%, say, Dad, I'm not comfortable with 10%, find a percent and start. And I have no problem saying, if you believe in what God's doing through City Church, give to City Church. And I can largely say that because I work a full-time job outside of City Church. So you're, you're not putting any money in my pocket, I can tell you. Be faithful to give. Be a giver. God owns it. Prioritize giving. So is my money serving me or am I serving my money? And again, this has nothing to do with how much money you have, how much money you do not have, how much money you make, how much money you do not make, how much money the other person has that you do not have. None of those things matter when it comes to what am I doing with what God has given to me? I read this question this week and it just floored me. This was the question. If Jesus were me, how would he be spending my money? Wow. If Jesus were me, how would he be spending my money? And I'll tell you, I'm talking to us, right? I'm talking to me. Ash and I are, are work a job that pays pretty well, and we love to travel, and we love to eat in restaurants, and we love to live in a home that's nice and drive vehicles that are reliable, right? So these are questions that we have to constantly ask ourselves. What role does money play in my life? And that question is really part of a bigger question. In, that, in this text. And here's the bigger question. What is ultimate in my life? What's the ultimate in my life? What am I holding on to most tightly? As I stand before Jesus like this rich young ruler, and I'm asked to give up whatever it is in that blank, would I walk away? If I was asked to give away whatever's in that blank, that makes you feel security, that makes you feel in control, that makes you feel stable. If I was asked to give away or to give up whatever is sitting on the throne of my heart, would I give it up to follow Jesus? Really, that is the question he's asking of all of us. Turn from whatever you're holding is ultimate in your life and follow me. Follow me. He says money here and wealth and stuff because that tends to be the thing that sits there. It's related somehow to that. But what is ultimate in my life? Listen, I'll be as frank as I can with you. Anything that prevents us from following Jesus, from living under his rule and reign, 
anything that prevents us from living under the rule and reign of Jesus is a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. The irony of this scene is this rich, young man is standing before a richer man. Jesus owned everything. He created it. And he gave everything up so that we might have life. Listen, listen to how Paul teaches this in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that what? So that you by his poverty might become rich, so that we might have eternal life. He's standing before the richer one who gave up everything so that this young man could live. And he can't even see it because he's blinded by his own stuff. And I wonder how blind we are by what sits on the throne of our heart. To follow Jesus, we are asked to relinquish whatever sits on the throne of our heart and to live under his rule and reign, and that is where true riches are found. Heavenly, eternal riches that cannot be taken away from us. So I want to read a quote from James Edwards, who has just a phenomenal commentary on the Gospel of Mark that I've just gleaned from through this series. Here's what Edwards says about this text. The kingdom of God topples our cherished priorities and demands new ones. It takes from those who follow Jesus things that they would keep and gives to them things they cannot even imagine. Those who take their stand on their riches, whatever those are, will have nothing to stand on. Those who give up everything, not only possessions, but even people and places, indeed their own lives, to follow Jesus will not simply be compensated for their sacrifice, but given a hundred times over with the same in this world and in the world to come with eternal life. To what am I clinging most tightly? By God's grace. Let's cling to the author of life. Because that's where true life, true riches are found. As Edward says, everything else is sinking sand. Let's bow our heads for prayer.